You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 117. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And check out Coding Blocks on Network, writing show notes, discussions, examples, more. And. <laughs> Send your feedback, questions, rants, and comments to comment uh, comments at coding block. You messed me all up. Comments <laughs> at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, I'm Alan Underwood. Uh, I'm Joe Zach. And I'm surprised that no one said it like this, so I will. I'm Outlaw Michael. <laughs> I really never promised you in order messages. That's right. I really expected that one of you was going to say that. Oh, that fits really well with this show, doesn't it? Out of order messages coming your way here. Well, now you can't you can't say it like that without uh, giving a brief introduction of what we're going to talk about. But first, this episode is sponsored by Datadog, the monitoring platform for cloud scale infrastructure and applications. And the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference, the only conference that focuses exclusively on software architecture and the evolution of being a software architect and educative.io. Level up your coding skills quickly and efficiently, whether you're just starting, preparing for an interview, or just looking to grow your skill set. All right. And today we're talking about the three factor app, which is a modern high velocity scalable architecture pattern for building applications and is the third part in the series. And the last episode we talked about factor two, which is basically how stateless apps and immutable, immutable events help provide reliable eventing. And today we're talking about async and serverless backends. Very nice. But before we jump into that, as we like to do, first we want to give a big thank you to those who have taken the time to write us some reviews. So I've got iTunes this time. And so this is going to be code and 40 K and then Buck Rivard. So thank you, you guys or gals. All right. And uh, go chaos, by the way, 40 K or hammer. Oh my gosh. You guys are such nerds. <laughs> Wait, how am I a nerd when you're the one that knew what that was and I'm completely in the dark. Ah, oh, anyway, moving along. <laughs> Did I, did I miss something? Oh, hey, oh, it's me. So Jedi Knight Luke, thank you very much. And, uh, and Molina, we really appreciate the views. Uh, very funny. Uh, so, you know, as much as I could pick on you guys for not recognizing 40K or maybe Star Wars, uh, I, uh, did not get the reference about, uh, what was the show outlaw? Well, wait, 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 wait. Okay. So, so yeah. So you're talking about Nico's review where, uh, he referred to us. Okay. Hold on. Let me find it. He says, uh, I love I love the sh- the chemistry between the three of you. Maybe if only second to Jesus the hamster and Captain Slow. And and we didn't get the reference. Oh, no, no, don't say and we. I didn't. I don't didn't. say we. <laughs> Even though I love the show, I didn't get the reference. Shows shows uh, plural. Yes, and so you want to share what those shows are because you got the reference oh, immediately. Immediately got this reference, and in fact, uh, he has hit us up on Reddit with a similar. Quite well, not similar, but a question about like, hey, that sounds like a, a reference to uh, the Top Gear or the Grand Tour if you were to read it in Jeremy Clarkson's voice. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And by the way, every time you were the first person who's ever picked up on that. And Outlaw, you've been doing that for years. Yeah, years. So that was that was pretty amazing. Very nice. 
Well, I appreciate the reviews as always, so thank you very much. All right. We're not skipping over this 40K thing, though. Yeah, yeah. What's, what's, what is this 40K? Oh, Warhammer 40K. I mean, I assume oh, okay. 40K is a reference to uh, Warhammer, ah, okay. a little miniature game. Okay. But you, then you said something about Star Wars, though. Uh, that was a uh, reviewer Jedi Knight Luke. Thank oh, you very much. Okay, so Jedi was a. Oh, okay. So, so you were conv- a, you were mixing the two things because forty k was from an iTunes review, a different person. Yeah. Okay. All right, we're all on the same page. We're at yes, yes, yes. I think we are at yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that there should be a Wikipedia page for yes, yes, no. <laughs> they so really that, should. You know, there, there, there probably is. is. <laughs> yeah, they probably. You is. guys will go on. I'm going to check. All, all right. right. So today we're talking about the three-factor app, like we mentioned. Uh, the first one, uh, the first factor was real-time GraphQL, and the second factor tied into that with a reliable eventing that was focused on immutable streams of data. And these two features put together kind of paved the way for the third factor here, which is async serverless. Woo! <laughs> uh, and what does serverless mean? Just out of curiosity. Because people hear this, and I think people have the wrong idea of what serverless actually is. So you want to, you want to. <laughs> Do you want the real answer or like uh, what we think it should mean? I, I, that's that's the thing. Like, I know the first time I heard serverless, I was like, "What is that?" Huh? And then after yeah. you see it, you're like, "Oh, I get it." But anybody want to take a stab at it? Like a, a broad stroke approach to what serverless is. I really don't know. I mean, I like as a user, I've, you know, put some stuff up there and it's worked out really great. I can see what it means for my bill, but uh, I really don't know how it works in the background, like how they get away with it. You outlaw? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I would say that like the the technical kind of, you know, con- tech, tech conference kind of definition about it is going to be the, something along the lines of uh, you're not worrying about infrastructure when you do serverless. So you're not like going to spin up a VM or a Docker container or anything like that. So think like, how could you get even smaller than a Docker container? And instead you're going to say, here's my function and you just run my function and you get charged for, uh, you know, how many times that function gets called. Totally. Compute on demand is really what right. it is, right? But the reality is it's still somebody else's server. <laughs> there is a server running. And that that's the whole thing. Like when people say serverless, it's like, wait, wait is this magic? No, right. no, no. It's basically you are sharing resources with a bunch of other people and you only get charged for the compute time that you're actually doing. So if your function takes 10 seconds to run, then you're getting charged for those 10 seconds that it's running. What was right. the Cloudflare thing that we talked about that was an even smaller um, threading. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Was that it? The think, the thread. I think that's what I they call. It was like edge something. I thought it was workers. Uh, it might have been workers. Uh, cloud flare threading. I'm pretty sure it was called workers. Maybe it was workers. I don't even remember now. Yeah. Cloud yeah, cloud, flo- cloud flare workers. Workers. So the you know the whole idea is like how could you get to an even smaller more granular unit of work? Uh, you know as you as you build out your cloud infrastructure, right? You know, we started with like, oh, hey, cool. We got VMs and we can like have one machine run eight VMs at a time. And then we're like, you know, we can really do better with the resources there. And so then comes along Docker and it's like, okay, we can just containerize everything. Well, really, I mean, that even sounds misleading, right? Because right. containers have been around since forever. Right. Um, and then And then it was like, you know, serverless comes along. It's like, hey, we can actually get this a little bit smaller and just focus on just the unit of work, uh, you know. So, yeah. 
Yeah, it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller every single time. By the way, I know we're out of the news section. Did you guys see the uh, Dockers in Trouble uh, articles that were flying around this past week? I did. Yeah, that was kind of sad where they're like having uh, some some money woes looking for the next fa- round of funding. Yeah. It'll work out. We yeah, it kind of sucks. I mean, it sounds like they kind of went all in on Swarm and Swarm's kind of getting their tails kicked from <laughs> Kubernetes. So, yeah, it's a bummer. They're so there's such an integral part of like so many people's like work lives, but uh, there's just not a monetization. You know, like we're not paying, I'm not paying money. So, yeah, it's a bit of a problem. Yeah. But I did want to mention uh, if anyone has a, like a nice article on uh, how service actually works, like at a fundamental love level, I'd love to see it because uh, it's so it's so full of like kind of marketing jargon and some people trying to sell me stuff. I can't really find an article on like how it does actually work. Hey, I have a tip for you. The episode I did at Ignite last year with John Calloway that uh, we actually, we deep dived and talked about like how Azure functions work and, and how they scale out and how you get charged and all that. Like it, there's a lot of deep well, information, right? So, <laughs> so I have a resource for you. Uh, um, yeah. We got, we'll have a link in the show notes. Yeah. So Anyways, all right. So now that everybody's sort of on the same page on what async serverless is, basically being able, you write a function and you can call that function, usually through a web API or something, right? Um, there might even be hooks that happen. You might have something that like async serverless indicates that there's something that happens that triggers it, right? More or less typically. And I think in what we're going to be talking about today, it's usually in a web API type sense. You can also do schedule stuff. So you can schedule every hour. Like the um, QIT runs off a serverless process that runs. costs me like five cents a month. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, these things are dirt cheap. And the only problem is that typically there's some sort of limit on these serverless functions. Like if you have a super long-running process, it might get killed in the middle of it, right? Like I want to say Azure Functions has a cap of like five minutes. After five minutes, it just dies. So... Um, you know, you, you do have to be aware of some of that stuff, but that also means that you're probably not writing your apps in a way that are going to scale very well anyways, if they're taking that long. So, And you don't want to assume state. Right. Right. Totally. State that can't be passed in, I should say. Or state that can't be shared through some sort of queuing system out there. Yeah. It, it's a very much disconnected world. So, um, yeah. So I guess the, the first note we have here is the three-factor app is pitching microservices that meet two properties. One. Yeah, and the first one is uh, idempotency. It's always a tough one for me to sell. Is basically dealing with uh, you know possi- the possibility of having duplicate messages. So we're saying that you're guaranteed to have at least one delivery of a message, but we can't promise you that you won't get it more than once. But the idempotent part of it means if you do get it more than once, it shouldn't it shouldn't create a new one, right? You should be able to identify that it's the same thing, right? Right. Yeah, and uh, there's actually a couple of techniques, so we'll, we'll just hit it real fast. Um, like one way to do that is basically to um, pass like the whole amount rather than the change. So like one example here is like maybe if you're buying a product and uh, you're changing the inventory, you would send the whole inventory n- number instead of just the amount that it's changing. So that's way, that way if you get that message again, you don't just decrement again and get the wrong number. That's not a great answer though. There's, there's other techniques because the problem there is like if messages coming out of order or something, then you could possibly get messed up there if you can't rely on the state. So uh, I've seen some other techniques too, and there's, there's probably even others, but like one is just to, um, for example, kind of check the state. Like you, you have some sort of number or identifier or something. You say like, Hey, have you seen this ID yet? Have you seen this message? And, and then if not, go ahead and make that, uh, that update. And, uh, 
No, I guess that's the only two I can really think of. Oh, you know what, though? Speaking along that, and this should have actually been a tip of the week, but why not put it here in the middle of the show? So, you know, we've talked about GUIDs or UUIDs in the past, right? A lot of people don't even realize that outside of calling a GUID.new or something like that, if you're in C Sharp or, or, you know, something like that, you can also create idempotent GUIDs based off a hash of some value. So, if you need a unique value so that it's item potent, you could take order number plus some other f- field in your order that you care about and use that as the input for the hash to create your UID. So every time that thing comes back across, you'll have the exact same unique identifier. So, you know, for those that aren't aware that you can actually create UUIDs that are consistent and item potent, that's you know that can be super helpful for you, especially in distributed computing situations. Yep. So the first property there was item potency, or at least one delivery mess once delivery of message, and the other was out of order messaging, which we kind of <laughs> referenced earlier at the start of the show, which is the idea that it's possible for messages to be out of order. And in practice, a lot of times this doesn't really happen that often, but you need to be able to prepare to. <laughs> You need to be able to deal with it. Sorry, I swear I'm doing this on purpose. Ha ha. Got the giggles over there. (laughs) Hey, so I want to back up for a moment, just real quick. So, uh, because I don't think you caught out the episode number for the Azure Function Talk and Cosmo DB Talk. Uh, So that was episode 92, Uh, and then um, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. But then your comment about the the hashing and item potency made me think like. Oh, well, because I know that you could like, you know, get an MD5 hash, for example, of something that I was like, uh, of whatever the thing is. And like, it's always going to produce the same result, right? Like, that's the, that's kind of the point. But it was like, oh, I wonder if that's uh, item potent. But there's actually a Stack Overflow uh, question that looks to be unanswered. Uh, and, in, and in the question, he's like, hey, is there a hash function that is item potent? And he says, I know MD5 and SHA-256 are not. So I don't know if that's accurate since it wasn't answered, but he seems to be pretty. So I know, consi- like, you know, or uh, sure of that it's not. So in Java, I know for certain there is a UUID function that you can actually take in a string when you create this, and you will get the same UUID every time. And I don't remember what hashing algorithm it was using under the covers. I I may not have ever even really looked it up. Um, so it may be that there's not an implementation in C sharp world. I don't know. I know that in SQL server, you can actually do the same type thing. You can take a hash of a value and get a consistent, um, unique identifier there. So it's definitely a multiple stacks, but I couldn't swear to it on all of them. Yeah. I want to mention too, there's a kind of a, a nifty algorithm called bloom filters, which I found about fairly recently when I was reading about um, databases. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's basically it's a it's a efficient algorithm for figuring out if an item is part of a set, and it gives you a probabilistic answer. So it either tells you no, it is definitely not part of this set, or maybe it is. <laughs> and it can give you a kind of a rating there. And what that's good for is um, there's certain data structures that are really good at finding results, but they are not so good when there is no result because it means they have to kind of scan the full set to see if it's in there. But using an algorithm like Boom Filters, it's really good at saying okay, really efficiently, this is definitely not in this database. So we have definitely not seen this message. And so what we could do is like if it's a more expensive operation to check if it's definitely there, 
then you can kind of use this as a shortcut to say like, okay, let's, if it, if it doesn't pass this check, then don't bother continuing. But does anyone else, like when you hear Joe's description of this, want to think of this as the dumb and dumber filter? Because you know, like immediately as you're describing it, I'm saying, I'm thinking to myself, so you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> no, I always say a blue filter. It's like for some reason I always thought of Photoshop. Like I thought it was actually like a filter for like, you know, some sort of like crazy, you know, I don't know, bokeh or something for uh, for like visual effects. But uh, I don't know. Maybe there is some sort of correlation there. I don't know why they call it bloom filters. Maybe it's the person's name or maybe it's, it's the literally person. a bloom filter. Burton Howard Bloom. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I just thought it was kind of neat. And so I read that some uh, data structures uh, will actually do that sort of thing where if you go to check for a record, they'll say, hey, let's check the bloom filter first. And then if the bloom filter says that we definitely don't have it, then let's skip the search and just insert it. So anyway, I just thought it was kind of nifty. So digression. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, now we've got a a couple. uh, We did this last time too. Um, Basically, we kind of compare like your kind of traditional like relational database backed kind of request response app versus the three factor app. So in the traditional app, we've got synchronous procedural code and the three factor app, we've got loosely coupled event handlers. And this episode is really focusing on that event handler part where we've got these async serverless operations, basically kind of running and watching for things to respond to. And when we say synchronous (laughs) procedural code, that's, that's the standard way that probably most people have interacted with like web servers or anything. You make a call, that call is going to hit an endpoint and that endpoint is then going to run a bunch of things in order, right? Like, um, here's my order information. Here's my order detail information. Here's my customer information. Insert it all into the database in some, you know, specified order and then return something back to the user, right? Oh yeah, so well, yeah, like a traditional, like you hit the you hit submit on the form, it goes to the server, and when that's done, it returns control back to the UI. And here we're saying like for the three factor, like go ahead and throw it into the queue, and then return immediately to the user. And then whenever somebody else, some async serverless process updates that data again, then we'll reflect it because we're both kind of dealing with the same stream of events, but we're decoupled, so we're not waiting on anything on either side. Right. Yeah, I like the way he put it better because because I was gonna say like. With the way you were describing that as the procedural, like I get where you're coming from, but that kind of implies like, oh, well, you can't do anything async await on the server side either, which isn't the case. Like you could do things in parallel on the server side and still be in this procedural definition. The difference is, is that you're not like just looking for, you know, watching some queue and like grabbing the next event off of it and then you know, responding back with an event. Yeah, that's fair. You're basically saying the workload on the server could be parallelized, but correct. But the UI is still waiting for a response. Right. The UI is still blocked. Right. Right. So, yeah. And, and this, this ties into the previous, not even the previous one, the one before it with the, um, graph, wait, GraphQL was was first. The GraphQL was first where it's actually subscribed as listeners, right? And that's why this works because when all those things come back, then your UI can say, Hey, I got everything. We're good. You know, do something. I don't know. Alert the user. Um, whatever. Yeah. Now I, I will say all that when you guys read this next one, but I take issue with it. Okay. So with that said, go ahead and well, say no, what I, the traditional, you say it, Alan, I don't want to say it. Go ahead and say what the traditional 
Hey, I didn't write this. Implementation so is. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't make up this page, so so I'll be happy to read it. So, in the traditional, you typically deploy on a VM or containers, versus in this new world of the three-factor app, you would do serverless platforms. Okay, what is wrong with my life then? If the traditional is a container, <laughs> <laughs> so you, right. So you feel old is what you're saying, right? Like, I, well, I mean, okay, because okay. I get that there there are like if you're working for like a Google or a Facebook right then then you've probably been in a container world for like the last you know 20 years. Right. I know that's a joke, but you know whatever. Right. You get the point. And 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 maybe on like you know small greenfield projects maybe you can do those in containers, but if you're in like a a small medium business that's not working on a greenfield application and you're on containers like I get that there are some but that's Quote traditional? Yeah, no, I, I don't. I, I don't think that's quote traditional. I take umbrage with that too because honestly, it wasn't even. It, it's only been recently that people are like, "Oh yeah, containers are are production ready, right?" Thank you. Outside of outside of Google, who's like, oh, "Okay, you guys are silly" because we've been doing this for a long time, right? But but a lot of companies are like, "Well, yeah. I, I don't know if I can trust these things, right?" Like. You know, the old, the old way of, of doing things was we're going to buy a $50,000 server. Let, let me make sure you understand how this works. We're going to buy a $50,000 server. We're going to install four VMs on it. Only Jim is allowed to touch it. <laughs> Only Jim's allowed to touch it. We're going to install four VMs on it and you're allowed to have that one VM over here, right? Like this is your VM. So that's actually how things have worked traditionally in most environments. Yeah. That, that is more traditional. Am I in? Unfortunately, it sounds like from my experience, that's the more traditional way. Yeah. And now you're old school because you're in container land. Well, I'm in <laughs> container land now. Yeah. Yes. So I guess, but according to this, I'm still like, you know, yeah, I'm still not, I'm still in traditional and, and should move on yeah. with, you know, with my life apparently. But you, you know, the, the funny part here is though, the whole idea with containers is like when you think about a container, it's it's very much like a VM in terms of how you interact with it. And so I think that's why they're saying this is traditional because in the serverless, all you have is an API. You don't know what the OS is. You don't know what the API type is. You just know that you have this URL that you can hit and that's it, right? So I think that's kind of what they're trying to get at here. So, you know, I get it. Maybe in a Linux world, Unix world, then you can definitely draw those parallels between containers and VMs a lot easier. But, yeah. you know, in a, a Windows world, what are you going to do for everything is graphical in your container, right? Like that's where that falls apart. Yep. Did you have any thoughts on this one, Joe? No, I just agree with you. There's such a big gulf in like people's work experiences. It's, it's crazy. Like you'll talk to some people and they're, some people are still doing jQuery and some other people are talking about like state machines and view. And you know, it, it's just such radical different experiences in the same with server. Like some people are like Kubernetes, like, man, I just started working with Docker. And other people are like, you haven't been using Kubernetes with Terraform for the last three years. Right. Yeah. Oh right. my gosh. You know, that actually meant, I hate to tangent this, but we don't have a ton in this episode anyways, so it's only going to be like four hours long instead of the typical six. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Right. Um, but we, we I think, I don't remember who it was this week because my brain's not working very well, but we had a conversation about how we have what we think everybody knows. Right. Like you're so used to working in certain things. You just assume that everybody, Oh, this is what everybody does. Right. And then you find out, wait, you don't, you don't do that. And, and wait, I don't do that. And it's easy to assume things. It's easy to assume because 
because you work in Docker every day that this is really easy, right? Like, oh, dude, don't, don't even worry about that. Docker run it. It's good. Or if you're in Visual Studio, hey, this is easier. If you're a Java person, like, oh, man, it's nothing, man. Just Gradle build that thing. You're good. Whereas somebody else comes along and it's a three-day trip down that road. So it, it is sometimes hard to take yourself out of the mindset of this is what I do every day. And think in terms of somebody else that's either new to it or an old hat to it or whatever, right? And I don't even know why that tangent came up other than the fact that um, that you were saying, yeah, I do containers all the time. So. Yeah. I, I think everyone's uh, got a degree of that. Even like some of the people that are working like the super ha- fancy, you know, high velocity stuff and you, you talk to them and like – the, some other things are like totally backwards, like either the deployment process or the way they do things or, uh, you know, they're working on a, gra- a green field project that they just started three weeks ago, you know, and, and it gets canceled three weeks from now. So, you know, it, it's, it's hard to judge, but it's definitely scary to me whenever I talk to someone who's just doing something that I thought of as a way out there. Like, oh, this example is, um, like machine learning. Like I've kind of like typically kind of, you know, turn my nose up a little bit at machine learning. Like nobody's doing that. Nobody's doing that. This doesn't even work. Like Alexa, you know, like, uh, Siri, all that stuff is terrible. And then, uh, you like every once in a while, I'll see like job postings, whatever for like Microsoft or I don't know, Google. And like, it's all like, you must have five years of machine learning experience. And I'm like, ah, so it's, right. it's good to kind of see things from outside your uh, echo chamber. Yeah. A, a different lens. But that's why, that's why I kind of take issue with this though, because like, I don't know that you can call anything traditional if it's still not like widely adopted. Like if it's not the norm, right? Mm -hmm. Like HTML. Okay. I think we can call that traditional, (laughs) right? Can you agree on that? Yeah. Right. But then, you know, containers, like I I still feel like the adoption is still a little too new. I I think that the ecosystem around containers is just getting to the point to where people feel comfortable with it. Right. Like, the whole reason Kubernetes is so popular now is because they've built an entire orchestration engine around that's, that's, I want to say it's easy to monitor, but they built all the tools in, right? That hasn't been around forever. So, so running this stuff in production was a bit of a nightmare for some folks. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. So, okay. Yeah. Well, well, semantics aside. Yes. You deploy on VMs or you're serverless. <laughs> that's it. Uh, so the next one is the traditional way is you manage the platform versus the platform is managed by somebody else, right? So this whole notion of you're updating your VMs, you're having to keep security patches and all that crap in place versus you just run an API that you don't know anything about. Yeah. And that can be you frustrating to you. Like I need a node version, this dot, this dot, that, and uh, it's not available or it's EOLing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You don't have to think about that stuff. They manage all the infrastructure for you. Yep. And related to that, uh, so if you're managing your own infrastructure, then you have to have some operational expertise about like how to kind of get that out there and deploy it. And there's just extra things you have to know versus not having to know anything aside from like checking it into Git and having it kind of automatically syncing up the, the serverless platform. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, you don't. there are plenty of websites out there where you don't have to know have you have you ever like seen any of the shodan reports of open oh yeah uh ports and vulnerabilities that are available like you don't have to have operational expertise oh god another tangent did you guys see the city of baltimore the they just got um uh ransomware. Oh, there's no. pl- plenty of those. This one they're saying is going to cost an upwards of eighteen million dollars. 
and they're not paying the ransom. So this is basically the cost they're going to incur for the fallout from that. So this, this is that operational expertise, right? Like right. Wow. somebody didn't, didn't back things up. Somebody didn't lock down ports. Somebody didn't do all that stuff. And that's the kind of stuff you don't have to deal with if somebody else is managing the service, hopefully. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was going to cost them. It sounds like it happened in May. It was going to cost them $76,000 to pay the ransom. They're like, no way. And now they're like looking at the bill for what it's going to cost to kind of restore that and fix that problem. They're like, Ooh. Yeah. It, but, but it's a no win situation, right? Like, I mean, you pay it, then you're going to get another one. Right. So, yeah. well, so unless you like lock make down, whatever, you know, necessary, take the necessary steps to go serverless really hard. I mean, Oh man. But yeah, so that, that is a big deal, right? Like not having to be the person who owns all that stuff of, I got to make sure all the servers are patched. I got to make sure everything, all the ports are closed down. Like this should help out with that. Just to, you know, speak a little bit closer to home though, you realize that both Florida and Georgia recently had some. Atlanta's uh, been hit twice, right? Yeah. Yeah. I want to say it was like the Atlanta court systems, maybe. It's so crazy, well, man. It, 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 and then, like, there were living, some small counties in Florida that got hit. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. We're living in a hard world right now. Like it's yeah. it's it's uh it's very difficult to secure everything properly. So definitely adversarial. Yeah, totally. So and it's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think right. I expected that. I don't think I did either. <laughs> <laughs> <That was>, uh, <laughs> Darn it. It's just not fair. Uh, I tried so <laughs> last, hard. It's true. Uh, the last comparison is basically auto scaling when possible versus auto scaling by default. And this, I think, is another one where a lot of people really aren't in this e- uh, ecosystem either. And, you know, I think what it is is like, this is, uh, this is Heroku, right? Or Hasura. Yeah. So there's some release in there. So they're like a modern kind of framework that's dealing with modern kind of problems. And I think they just have a different viewpoint where they're looking at people pulling new greenfield apps on their environments. And so they're probably seeing things where mostly people are cloud. Mostly they're doing VMs or containers. And so it's not necessarily representative of the, of the whole world. You know, I think that's a fair assumption. What you just said, most people are doing cloud, and that's probably why the whole container thing even comes up, is because a lot of people don't even know that they're using containers behind the scenes, right? Like if you drag up a bar in in your cloud environment and say, hey, auto-scale this thing out, it's creating containers for you, and you don't even know it. You don't care, right? Um, if you're running on VMs, chances are you're not auto-scaling. Well, that might <laughs> depend on like how that service is running. Like if you're totally. using an RDS, for example, an Amazon RDS then maybe behind the scenes that's implemented on containers, but your EC2 might, you know, isn't as well, if it's a windows EC2 instance, it's likely not. Right. Right. It's, I mean, it's hard to say, but at least in traditional senses, if it's a a standard VM, you're not auto scaling. Um, But it is curious, sorry to interrupt, but it is curious that to Joey's point about Hasora, because you know, their, their product is, real-time GraphQL and Postgres. So that doesn't really sound like something serverless when we talk about like, oh, you can't have state, right? Because a database is all about state. Uh, but they they wrote their own um, event thing on top of Postgres, right? If I remember right, that was like one of their claims to fame on their site. Instant real-time GraphQL on Postgres? Yeah, I think they have like a triggering, uh, an event triggering system for Postgres. So when data changes, it would fire an event that could then um, go out to your application. I believe that was correct. Um, 
So, but here's the, here's the thing about the auto scale by default. And this, you know, going back to the episode that outlaw mentioned earlier from ignite last year, 92. Yeah. This is one of the cool things about things like Azure functions or AWS lambdas and all that kind of stuff is it will auto scale up for you. And you don't even have to think about it. It's not even a slider you have to do, right? Like if you put, if you bring in enough load that requires more memory or more compute than what's available on that one system and, and for what your workload is, it will auto do it for you. Like it, I forget Azure was something like it go up to like 300 instances of your function running at a time. And so you don't even have to think about it. It's not even that you got to go in and make changes up in, in your cloud console. You straight up don't even have, you can put it out of your mind. Right. Cause to compare, to contrast it then in a typical like cloud, you know, instance world, you might say like, okay, fine. I'm fine with you scaling up to this many instances. Cause this is what my budget will allow for. Right. Right. So maybe that's, maybe that's three, maybe that's two, maybe that's 10, maybe that's a hundred. Right. But you know, depending on like what your use is and your, your budget can afford, you're going to like have some kind of predefined limit there. Yep. It, it's, you know, I, when I first started hearing about microservices, I was like, oh, I don't know. It sounds like a big pain in the butt. You have to manage these dependencies and manage your deployments and versioning. And it just sounds like a big headache. And then I heard about serverless and I was like, okay, now I'm interested in microservices. Right? <laughs> this seems like a nice fit. Now that I don't have to worry about infrastructure and all I got to worry about is making sure I have the pieces out there to run my application. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So, yeah, so I'm on board. Yeah, so every function you ever write, every method of every class now, just imagine that as being serverless. Yeah, uh, you could actually have multiple functions and they can be bigger. I've, I've definitely abused the serverless thing uh, so far. <laughs> but, uh, I'm happy with it. This episode is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring platform for cloud scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog provides dashboarding, alerting, application performance monitoring, and log management in one tightly integrated platform so you can get end-to-end visibility quickly. Visualize key metrics, set alerts to identify anomalies, and collaborate with your team to troubleshoot and fix issues fast. Try it yourself today by starting a free 14-day trial and also receive a free Datadog t-shirt when you create your first dashboard. I like the t-shirt, by the way. Head to datadog.com slash cutting blocks to see how Datadog can provide real-time visibility into your application. Again, that's datadog.com slash coding blocks to sign up today. All right, so it's that time to ask you to please consider leaving us review at codingblocks.net slash review where we've tried to make it really easy for you. We know that uh, it's not fun, but we really appreciate it and it's a big deal for us and it really helps us out. So if you could go to codingblocks.net slash review, then that would help us out a lot. Thank you so much. And thank you if you already have. We really appreciate it. All right. And with that, it's time for my favorite part of the show. Survey says. All right. You see Joe back there like, (laughs) throwing me off guard. Uh, All right. So uh, a couple episodes back, we asked, what's your favorite type of, of swag and your choices were <clears throat> stickers because they make my laptop go faster that's fact. a proven fact um shirts i <laughs> i wear them pretty often <laughs> or water bottles gotta hydrate coffee cups coating requires coffee fact. hats in case of bad hair day i wish 
super cute socks or bags because they cost the most or pens and notebooks in case I need to write something down super quick. All right. Uh, you know, I made a note. I made a note for myself to remember like which one of you went first last time so that I could make sure to alternate it. And I don't remember who I think Joe went first last time. All right. So, uh, that's why I brought it up. So (laughs) 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 that was done on purpose. Alan, I intended for you to go first, man. I, this one, I truly don't know what people are going to pick. I'm more interested in finding out what the answer is here. Cause I don't think I'm going to get close. I'm, I'm going to go with coffee cups because, you know, coders got to, got to get some caffeine. So let's go 25%. Coffee cups, 25%. All right. And I'm definitely going with stickers here because I can put it in my pocket when people give it to me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Stickers. But I will say. What's the percentage though? Oh, yeah. What's your your percentage? 80%. 80%. Oh, come on, man. Wow, that's confidence right there. I will say, though, people were super excited about the hats at Atlanta Code Camp. They certainly yep. were. And Orlando Code Camp. Yep. 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 Which is why when I tell you that Joe picked stickers at 80%. He's pretty close, I'm sure. And Alan picked coffee cups at 25%. You're going to be shocked when you find out the real answer. Because you're both wrong. Really? Whoa. Okay. So. Shirts. Shirts was the number one answer. Really? Okay. 35% of the vote. Okay. Now, coffee cups was a strong contender for second place. Okay. At at 19. Okay. Well, as strong as it could be. And uh, stickers was third. Third place. 13%. Okay. All right, well. Hats was sadly the last one. It was last place. Really? Yeah. I don't know if everybody has seen these hats. (laughs) Right. Uh, I've got some Twitter links I could share with you, uh, you know. But, yeah, surprisingly, hats was the least popular option. It went shirts, coffee cups, Coffee cups. I mean, coffee cups. I never would have expected that one to be in the top three, let alone second place. Shirts, coffee cups, stickers, bags, socks. I, I thought socks would have done better before I would have picked socks really? over bags or I'd coffee have put cups. socks dead last. Besides, have, have you seen the goofy socks people like to wear? It doesn't, no, like it's they a gotta, thing. they're covered up. Like, no, 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 no. That's, that's <laughs> the, that's the beauty of, of funny socks is, you know, goofy socks is that, like, you know, they're they're like hidden until they aren't, and then you're like, oh my god, those are you like coding blocks, um, okay. <laughs> and pens and notebooks. I mean, come on, really? Like <laughs> everyone gives those away. You get too many of them. I can't believe hats lost to pens and notebooks, and and then water bottles. You know, I can see water bottles being uh, up there, not second to the bottom. Mm. Yeah, water bottles. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, color me surprised. Right? right. Yeah. I, that's uh, that's really interesting. And, and to be honest, like we're probably going to use these results to drive what we're going to buy. Well, I mean, I get shirts being popular. Right. Yeah, that's totally. definitely a popular thing given away at uh, conferences and that everything. That one's so harder, though, because sizing. I get that one. Right. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I was shocked to see some of those other ones. So yeah. Well, yeah. Coffee cups for the win. 
Good to know. Cups. Yeah. One Apparently. size fits all. Oh, we have some of those. We do we? in the cookbook yeah. store. If you go to cookbooks.net slash uh store. Swag. <laughs> slash swag. Swag. Oh, man, that reminds me. We always forget this. And this is probably why we just have some trickles in. Um if you want some swag, you know, send us your information. Go to codingblocks.net slash swag and send us your information. You can private message us, whatever, and and we'll get some to you. So I mean we we were talking about Nico's uh you know review from earlier and he actually mentioned mugs. So yeah, I guess coffee cups, you know, are 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 legitimately a popular thing. They're a thing. I wouldn't have guessed as popular as they are. Yep. So what what we got on tap? But you for know, today's? now that I say that though, I'm I remember I have that amazing one. Um, MS Dev Show. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like almost a, a soup bowl. It's so gigantic, <laughs> man. It's like it's like you expect John Oliver to make make a joke about how big it is. Uh, but it's awesome because it's like you know it holds everything you need. All right. Well, so for today's survey, uh. We will ask, which relational database is your go-to? Now, should we do these by, like, uh, mascots or... Um, I don't think all of them <laughs> have, have mascots. This is a oh, problem. Do they not? Does Oracle have a mascot? No, uh, I don't think so. Is your go-to database the elephant in the room? <laughs> is it? <laughs> is it the dolphin? Uh, what would... Oh, oh, shoot. I lost my place now. Uh, well, ooh, yeah. SQL Server. Yeah, what's SQL Server's mascot? I don't think Clippy. They have they have, they have like Clippy. <laughs> Clippy. <laughs> Clippy. They have some sort of bendy looking fabric thing. I don't, I don't yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. I don't know what it would be. Uh, but at any rate, like maybe I should get serious about these because Oracle's is just a boring logo. Right. Yeah. I don't, uh. All right. So seriously, is it is it Postgres? Uh, which is the elephant in the room, obviously. Is it MySQL, which is Flipper the Dolphin? Uh, SQL Server, Clippy, <laughs> Oracle the Big Red Box, <laughs> and No, as in NoSQL. And then uh, we have Graph here, so Graph Database. Did you have a particular Graph Database in mind? No, same thing as NoSQL. There's there's so many of them. Just curious how many people have d- decided to dive off the deep end. All right, so go. no particular NoSQL implementation, no particular graph database implementation. Just if you're in one of those, then let's just consider it you're already on the fringe right? Uh, already. So we'll lump all those in so they can like have a um, – they'll probably like – when and we'll be like, oh my gosh, we're so traditional. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, DGraph has a very cute logo. Does it's it? like it's a badger, maybe, or it's a yeah, it's a badger. <laughs> <laughs> I almost called it something unseemly. Wait, it looks like a skunk. Oh, you said it. That's not a badger, is it's it? This, yeah, it's a uh, yeah, it's a badger. Whatever. <laughs> it's written entirely in Go. Apache Apache 2.0 license. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in. Uh, I keep looking at DGraph and Neo4j. Yeah, like Neo4j, I think is like the the big dog, but mm-hmm. uh, DGraph just like has the cute badger. So, man, we should totally do an episode on graph databases because people who've never seen them get blown away by what they can do when they actually see them in action. Yeah, first I need to learn how to use it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's not a requisite. All right, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Or prerequisite. 
This episode is brought to you by the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is coming to Berlin November 4th through November 7th. The O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference is the only conference that focuses exclusively on software architecture and the evolution of that role. This conference is in the weeds with tech and covers complex topics from microservices and serverless to domain-driven design and application architecture. The Software Architecture Conference features different styles of learning from 50-minute sessions all the way to two-day training courses. The Software Architecture Conference also focuses on soft skills. O'Reilly knows that architects are having to communicate complex technical topics and their merit compassionately to both upper management and technical teams. The conference is here to help you navigate different communication styles, like in their two-day training, The Architectural Elevator. O'Reilly knows how siloed software architecture can feel. The Software Architecture Conference offers countless networking opportunities so that you can meet people who are working on the same tech as you and can offer personal experience and learnings that you can apply to your own work. Many of the attendees are either aspiring software architects or doing the work of a software architect without the title. The conference offers a special networking experience called Architectural Catas, where you get to practice being software architects. Attendees break up into small groups and work together on a project that needs development. Software architecture will be co-located with the Velocity Conference this year, which presents an excellent opportunity to increase your cloud-native systems expertise. Get access to all of Velocity's keynotes and sessions on Wednesday and Thursday in addition to your Software Architecture Pass access for just €445. Listeners to Coding Blocks can get 20% off most of the passes to the software architecture when you use the code BLOCKS during registration. That's B-L-O-C-K-S. All right, so on with the benefits of serverless architecture. Uh, we kind of handed this one already. Uh, no ops. <laughs> no SQL to no ops. No runtime to manage, no RAM, no disk, no versions of Java, no uh, operating system versions of CVEs. Um, no RAM, no disk, no CPU. When you create this stuff in like AWS or Azure, you, there aren't a lot of decisions to make, right? So uh, I thought that was really cool. Um, let's say it's free scale. Basically, it scales based on utilization, which is just hyper efficient. You, know, you used to buy servers and you have a bunch of stuff just compute, just wasting time. Then we got smaller with like EC2 instances or whatever. And then we still have, you know, some kind of overhead there and we're just shrinking it down further and further. Containers made it better. So just is getting close to the smallest amount of efficiency, which is very exciting and it scales up really well. So it's just a, a really great scaling story. And we all, all know how Alan likes that. <laughs> Pretty soon it won't even like that'll be too much and we'll just be like threads. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, uh, they also mentioned the cost is a factor. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and look up how many, uh, how many requests you get in the free tier of AWS Lambda? Ah, oh, see, so there were equations on Azure for this, mm-hmm. and it's crazy how little you pay for even decent amounts of, of load. And I want to say they had like 10,000 free on Azure. Yeah, you should look at that. Uh, I'll tell you what, you looked that up because I just found AWS. Uh, AWS, in their free tier, they will give you 1 million free requests per month. Mm. Okay. And which is up to, uh, and also 3.2 million seconds of compute time per month, which is, that's a, that's a whole lot of requests. If you're bootstrapping a small business, like if you can, <laughs> right, if you can run static site, first of all, then you, like you win. Second, 
if you can get your stuff running on serverless, so then that is the cheapest way and the, the most resilient way. So it's not only the cheapest, but it scales up the most efficiently. Yep. It's actually the same in Azure. You get a 1 million free executions per month, and then it's 20 cents per the next million executions, right? <laughs> Which is, I mean, just ridiculous. And then the way that they calculate this thing, there's actually an odd equation. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but it's because it, it, you just, your brain will shut down in the middle of it. Um, find the circumference of your head, divide by pi, <laughs> carry the two. That's not far off. But it's zero point zero 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 one six per gigabyte second of utilization. And and that's the thing. Like to define that it's sort of weird. But you get four hundred thousand of those things free a month as well. So you get you get a lot of free executions and calls to these things before you ever pay a dime. But see that's the thing that's so funny though. It's like even in trying to describe it, you like have to use the word like things. Like you get 400 <laughs> of those things. You're like, what is yeah. it? I don't know, but you get 400,000 of them. So, you know, now, enjoy your day. Now I will say this. So they do have a nice example on their site that will tell you kind of what the cost would be. So I'm not going to go through the equation, but I'll at least give you the numbers for, for what ends up being the total cost. And this will give you an idea. So an example um, resource consumption billing calculation here. You have 3 million executions a month and each of these runs for a second. All right. So that's 3 million seconds. All right. The resource consumption, I think it, I, if I remember on Azure, it was something like everything assumes a baseline of 512 megs of RAM and then it can go up from there and you can get charged for that depending on how much usage is there. But at any rate, so you're going to use 512 megabytes of RAM times 3 million seconds, and that's 1.5 million gigabyte seconds is how they come up with this equation. Um, the monthly You take out the monthly free grant, and you're left with 1.1 million gigabyte seconds, and then you multiply it by this factor, the 0.0016, and then you come out with $17.60 a month. So for your wow. 3 million executions and using CPU during those 3 million seconds, you're only getting charged $17 a month and some change. That's pretty amazing compared to when you think about the VM world. Hey, hey Joe, I remember you were running your uh, color mine site on the cheapest tier Amazon EC2 instance back in the day. And, and at the dirt low end cost, it was still 20 bucks a month. Yep. And and it did yeah, it totally could have been running off zero zero bucks per month, right? And <laughs> so th that just kind of gives you like this whole idea that man, you get a lot of functions, a lot of CPU processing for less than twenty dollars a month. It's it's really cool. Yeah, I just did the math on it here, so let me just double check here. So at uh, four hundred thousand gigabytes per second, that is roughly half a Nickelback. <laughs> According to Google, Google Translate. God, he got us again, man. How many 50 cents was that? It's oh, two thirds of 50 cents. Uh, so good to know in case you're cooking or whatever. In case you're cooking. He got us again. So so they can translate anything and anything. But uh, yeah, so great for cost. A um, couple uh, service providers we mentioned, Lambda and Azure Functions. Google has functions, which I didn't even know. Uh, Zite, I never heard of that one. 
uh, open fast is the one I usually hear about. Cause it, one of the questions I had when I first heard about it was like, how do I run this locally? And so I heard open fast is the way to go, but really this stuff runs outside of functions too. Like at least with Azure, the code that I had run, I could just run it. It doesn't have to be run via some sort of, you know, crazy, whatever from just working on it locally. But I guess, you know, ultimately you want to kind of have it mimic that production environment. So you know, open fast is a, is a option for that. You're going to uh, skip Cubeless and native. What was that? Why are you going to skip? Uh, I didn't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. <laughs> Cubeless and native. So if you're in the Kubernetes world and you want to do these like serverless type things, those are, those are features. Those are your options. So cool. So, all right. So, um, you know, we kind of wanted to sum things up a little bit. Like we talked about the various three parts, like the GraphQL, the reliable event sourcing. And now we just talked about kind of, uh, async and serverless backends. And so we want to kind of like high level talk about, when you would use this uh, three-factor app, just to kind of button things up. And uh, we found some really nice uh, guidance from Microsoft basically talking about streaming architectures, and it fit really nice with this article And so um, with three-factor app. So they recommend to use architectures like this when you've got multiple subsystems that subscribe to the same events, which I thought made well enough sense. Like if you got like, say like a sales system and a order system and you know, all this stuff is kind of watching the same things and all need to kind of run off this is another way of kind of saying like microservices mm-hmm. that can operate off the same input. When you really care about low latency events. So, you know, we kind of mentioned the Uber example before, like where you really want to see that car driving towards you or if it's driving away or just parking and trying to charge you anyway. But you, you know what? This is something I realized looking at this is I think that that particular article we were looking at was talking about microservices specifically. Yep. And, and so there is a line I want to, to draw here that's super important to understand because this is one of the things that came out of that episode 92 or whatever is with serverless, you don't get that super low latency. So. If you are managing your own microservice architecture, you can because the whole point is you can scale to meet the demand, right? And you might have like, you might have more control over the physical proximity. Yes. Yes. Whereas when you're doing something like Azure Functions specifically, because I'm more familiar with those, you could actually have a couple second spin up time because when you make that call, if that thing hasn't been run recently, Mm. it's going to reallocate it. Set up the, the, the CPU availability. Assuming it's RAM. down completely. Correct. Yeah. So you can actually have latency just because it's having to get this thing set up to run for that first request. Yes. And then subsequent requests might be faster. Yeah. Yeah. If so, they're coming so if in you, over time. If you operated in like burst modes where like, yeah, you might get, uh, you know, every, every hour on the hour, you get 10 minutes of steady burst traffic fine mm-hmm. but that first one on the top of the hour is always going to take the hit yep. of being a little bit having a little bit more latency than the rest yeah so it, it's interesting i wanted to point that out because this low latency is specific to microservices not necessarily to serverless architectures and that's another thing that is also sort of uh, just a feature of these various different clouds is you can also run serverless on existing um VMs that you have. So for instance, if you're in AWS and you have an EC2 instance, I would assume that you can tell the lambdas to run on your existing EC2 to leverage the additional compute that's not being used at any given time. 
because you can do that in Azure. You can basically say, hey, I want you to spin up on your own, which can increase latency. Or you can say, hey, always be loaded in one of my Azure um, VMs mm-hmm. so that this thing's always ready to go, right? It just leverage compute I'm already paying for, more or less. So, so again, just you know, be super clear here. This does introduce latency, especially depending on if there's gaps in between processing. Yeah, it was a great point. Great point. So you're saying uh, there's a chance. There's a chance. <laughs> So I also mentioned uh, just complex uh, event processing. I put a couple examples here, like uh, machine learning or aggregations or um, windowing is a kind of an interesting concept where you look at events that are close together and kind of group them because that means something when things happen close together. But what do you mean by machine learning, though? <laughs> so real-time machine learning, I keep hearing about it, but um, basically the ability to adapt to events sooner than like uh, rather than running on, say, like a 24-hour batch process. So you, there might still be some batching involved. Like I really don't know a whole lot about it other than to say that like, I keep hearing more and more about people trying to adapt to things sooner. So like if you're like, say, an Amazon or something, you've got like reviews that you're watching out for and people are constantly bombarding you with fake reviews in order to kind of watch that. And you want to be able to adapt to changes in their behavior as fast as possible. Well, so if okay. they start some new tactic or something, you want to catch it in five minutes, not five hours. I guess what I'm asking then, are, are we talking about the training of a model or are uh, we talking yeah. about the use of a model? No, the use. The use well, of I'm a t- model. Uh, I was talking about the training, but maybe only because okay. I know don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, I mean, you might be talking about the training of the model if we're talking about like streaming, uh, you know, or like online uh, algorithms. Maybe maybe that's what we're talking about. Well, the problem is for that online model, you're going to have to have state, right? That's that's where things come in. That's where like I would think that using the model for events that come in or data that comes in, that makes more sense using an existing model. Whereas training the model, you've got you got to have state there somehow. Which there are ways to share state with these things, but but that seems like it would be more complicated at least in my mind. Yeah, I mean the the online models are like way above my pay grade. Like, I, I mean, yeah, there's there's still some learning I have to do there on, on how those work. So I can't I can't tell you if that, but it would seem like it, it definitely I could picture the use of the uh, the model easily in a serverless environment. So the training of it gets complicated. So yeah. again, I think I think the problem is is these things that we're looking at right now that, that we pulled off this page are about microservices, right? And so if you had a microservice set up for for doing a machine learning model that it's trying to train, that makes sense because that particular service can have the state. But if we're talking about service serverless functions, that's that's sort of a different ballgame, right? Which page are you guys referring to, though? Do you have a link so I can be sure to save it in the, or share it in the links? Did we put it up there, Joe? Uh, yeah, it's in the um, it's in the uh, resources we like section. Oh, is this the the Microsoft event driven link? Yep, architecture style. Okay. Yeah, I'll tell you the the stuff that I was reading about was not related to this article. I was just reading about like real time machine learning, and it was specifically about kind of catching bad behavior sooner because of the kind of the way that the bad people were uh, adapting. But I've also heard of situations like locally, um, you know, like the theme parks have like those bands that you can wear on your wrist and like pay for stuff and like get on rides faster. Well, they do a lot of real time analytics on stuff that too. And what I've heard is like kind of long term, what they're wanting to do is like basically see like, oh, they've been riding rides for three hours straight. Like maybe we should send them a coupon for a drink or something in order to kind of get them to spend money sooner, which ends up being more money over time. Hmm. Hmm. That's, that's pretty cool. I guess it's uh, either way. <sighs> Just another way to get our money. Yep. Yep. 
Uh, the last one they got here, uh, another example is basically high volume or high velocity data. They mentioned IoT, we mentioned Uber kind of thing. Like, um, I do hear a lot about IoT devices and stuff that people are doing that I'm totally out of that loop, but I don't know. It sounds cool. It makes sense for like sensor data or something. You're like watching temperatures or something or I don't know. Yep. What other sensors there are, but <laughs> sounds cool. Those are perfect examples of where serverless functions make a ton of sense. Yeah, you don't want to be looking at your batch process for like overnight to see if your uh, nuclear core melted down, right? Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, right, like um, the scaling factor alone is one of the interesting things is because maybe as the sensor goes bad, it starts spitting out a lot more data. And and so it's going to scale up for you and you don't have to worry about it, right? But when everything's, you know, all peachy and moving along at the regular pace it should, you just have standard, you know, standard load. So. Uh, that is a great example of when this might actually come into play. Yep, and we've got a, a short list here of the benefits. So basically, uh, one of the big things we've talked about a few times is having those producers and consumers completely decoupled. And so they're both interacting with that event stream, but they're doing it in isolation of each other. So nobody's waiting on the other person. It's just a nice architectural pattern. Uh, no point-to-point integrations, uh, which means you can easily add new consumers to the system without having to change necessarily the producers or consumers that you have in effect. You're basically adding new observers to this data stream, which doesn't necessarily you know, require anything else to change. So I have a question on this then. Are we saying it would then be an anti-pattern if you have one serverless function calling another serverless function? You know what I mean? So uh, let's no, say that you know. place an order – and you and it calls a serverless function, and then that thing is going to say, "Okay, I did my thing." It's almost like procedurally calling services. I, I've seen oh, people right. do this before, right? Like they call one service, and that service calls another service, and 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 it can kind of get nasty. Yeah, you end up with an infinite loop. <laughs> I don't and, know. Yeah, or or you know you end up having to deal with things like service discovery and and various other things. Like yep. it, it can truly get ugly, as opposed to. Hey, let me fire off events for my order, my order details and all this stuff. And they all go off to different server functions and then they all return back to your app at some point in time. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great. Plus, yeah. The one downside here that they didn't mention in the article is just how grossly complicated this can get. Yeah. Like talking about service discovery and deployment changes, like like major schemas or like schema changes and how things uh, talk to each other. Like uh, it can be a real headache to have to think about all this, these other parts of the system that are disconnected. Yep. Uh, consumers can respond to events immediately as they arrive rather than waiting on, you know, their part. So if, if, if it's something truly asynchronous, like I mentioned, the ability to like send a coupon about that eliminate or whatever, that's something that doesn't have to wait for them to get off the ride and go ahead and, and respond to that as soon as it wants to, uh, which is nice. Uh, high scalability and distribution, <laughs> distribution, distrib- distributedness. So it, it's just a, a nice cloud pattern. Basically it's uh, kind of checks all those like modern best practice boxes. Unlike and, all that traditional stuff that you're doing right? with containers. Yeah. VMs. <laughs> right, abacuses. Uh, subsystems have independent views of the event stream. I, 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 that's kind of related to the decoupled uh, decoupled consumers and producers, I think, um, unless I'm missing something. No, I would agree with that. I think so. Yep. So just kind of cool. Um, so they do have a, a list here of challenges. Um, I'm going to add uh, gross... <laughs> complexity <laughs> that's, gonna that's be gross is in a lot like 12 dozen yeah it, it could. <laughs> not like gross is in other kind of gross 
It, All right, so it, it uh, guaranteed amazing. delivery is a big deal. Like we mentioned specifically that we, we're watching out for item potency and we're watching out for uh, duplicate messages, but you have to make sure that those messages get there at least once, which can be you know a hard thing to do in a distributed system where a piece can go out or you can have like a network partition or something and something can't communicate and things get out of sync and uh, that can be a problem. So that's something that you're constantly having to think about in systems like this. Yeah, and that's going to be on the application itself, having to know, hey, did this get delivered? Why well, haven't heard back? Like, there, there's got to be all kinds of things put in place to handle that. Well, imagine, yep. imagine, let's go back to our e-commerce world, right? And so everything is event-driven. Everything is is three-factor app friendly in this system. And the the one of the last events that's going to be sent is, hey, the order the the customer placed the clicked the button to actually place the order, and you know, maybe 25% of the time that that message doesn't go through. Imagine. Right. Oof. Like imagine what that would mean to like an Amazon. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a uh, guaranteeing delivery is actually a little bit harder than what it sounds. And, and on the gross complexity thing too, I did want to mention that like we kind of glossed over why it's so hard when you don't manage state. Like everything becomes a lot harder when you have to start thinking about a world where you don't have access to the data that makes up all the bits and pieces. You have to think about everything completely different. Just put it on a cookie. <laughs> there you go. Um, so just kidding. Um, so yeah. Yep. Uh, also want to mention processing events and orders. You can imagine like, if you um, get things out of sync, you have that network partition or maybe some sort of, you know, leader goes out of the commission for a little bit and then kind of comes back in and, and sends stuff out of order. Like if you've got things that need that stuff to be in order, like, for example, like if you start shipping an order that's already been canceled or you send somebody a coupon after they already bought lunch or something, you know, th- things can get a little goofy. And that's a, a challenge in particular um, when you're trying to weigh uh, processing things in order against guaranteed delivery. Like these things are kind of at odds with each other. Have you ever heard the uh, Byzantine generals problem? No. Or the two generals problem. It's where, uh, so it's, uh, it's a basically an example of that, uh, example of this kind of situation where you've got two generals like on two different hills, like that are about to pre- prepare to attack a city, but they need to coordinate their attack. So they're attacking at the same time. And so general A sends a message to general B and says like attack at noon. But they need to know that that message was received, right? Otherwise, they just run down there. And how do they know if the messenger got caught or didn't make it, tripped and died in a ravine or whatever? Hmm. And so, you know, the answer is basically like, okay, well, General B will send an ACK back and say, okay, I got your message confirmed. But how does General B know that its message got back to General A? Right. Because General A will send a a double confirmation. and So So how do you ever know? Yeah. How can you ever truly confirm anything? That's a really good. I mean, this whole like parts of this conversation made me feel like this was a like a a TCP protocol conversation, especially when we're talking about like events can come in out of order and you got to like put them back in order. And when you said you got to send an ACK, I'm like, oh yeah, there we go. It's even more like a TCP conversation. But but to be clear here, that's the important part of this is that's why item potency is so important is because that, that Byzantine type thing where you're talking about general A and general B general A sends the order, right? He's waiting for an act from general B. If he doesn't get it in some predefined amount of time, right? Then he's going to send the message again. Mm -hmm. Right. And so he's still going to wait for the act. So the fact that it's item potent, 
means that you're not going to submit that order twice. You know, if it got it the first time, but the act didn't come back, the second time it comes in, basically General B is going to just throw away the message and be like, I already got that. I'll, I'll reply back and let you know I got it, but I'm not going to do anything with it. So the three-factor app is not UDP. It is not UDP. It is right. all about TCP. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and uh, there's also uh, – yeah, we've, we've talked about having an episode on distributed systems, and we can talk about more of this stuff kind of in, in general. But there's a lot of techniques for dealing with exactly that sort of thing, and they really relate to all sorts of uh, kind of general principles in programming, like the two generals problem where we talked about signing act and networking. So many of these patterns, and even what we're talking about today – kind of mirror patterns in functional program where you've got like this immutable state and you know, these, uh, these finite, like, uh, kind of, uh, isolated workers. So I don't know. It's just, it's kind of cool to see stuff reflected, like principles reflected throughout the stack. So Haskell was right. Haskell's right. Uh, so processing events exactly once, you know, we mentioned that already. Uh, latency is an issue there. Um, especially if you've got, I mean, not especially like if you have producers producing faster than you have consumers consuming, then that's a death spiral. So latency is very important, not just in like good user experience, but in like, uh, not ending the world experience or ending your world. But also the, the, the main reason I put it here too was because in the serverless function world, you could be waiting on spin up. So it's not like you're going to guarantee sub second response time. If that function hasn't run in a day, you might be waiting three or four seconds before you get that response. Um, your next one might come back in, in, you know, 10 milliseconds, but that first one may take some time. Yeah, like we talk about Kafka a lot, but like a lot of, uh, the benefits of using like a robust system like Kafka for, it basically it's intended purpose of streaming events is it's got a lot of, uh, Oh, I don't want to say guarantees, but it's got a lot of technology and a lot of thought put into things like processing events and orders and processing orders exactly once and giving you insight into latency. Like it's ground up and decided designed with all of these things in mind. And so while you can like go off and kind of write your own thing, maybe around a relational database in order to meet some of these, these boxes, check those boxes, uh, that it's, it's an uphill battle. And some of these problems are really hard. Yeah, they truly are. It's not fair. Somehow I just got reminded of like an old uh, YouTube video of Erling the movie. <laughs> <I've never laughs> Do you guys remember that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'm yep. going to like, I'm going to put some links in there because we're talking about functional languages. And of course we're like, we're giving too much love to Haskell. So I guess we had to bring up Erlang. Uh. We should also, hey, Joe, you said a picture earlier of, of a test that was like, name the five, uh, the five. Oh, that wasn't me. That was John. Oh, uh, he said it, the five states of program. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we should totally drop that in the show notes here because that, that was hysterically funny. Oh, do you want know. me to read it? Or no, no, I don't want to tell it. People need to go up there and yeah, see Yeah, you got to go to the notes. Yeah, you got to go to the notes. Uh, I'm going to make sure uh, I go ahead and save that picture funny. right now. Yeah, codingblocks.net slash episode 117. It will give you a ha-ha moment for your day. And hey, maybe a funny dog video there too. I don't know. Oh, we should put that it. in there too. Yeah. So this has been Bacon? a funny night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. This episode is sponsored by Educative.io. Every developer knows that being a developer means constantly learning new frameworks, languages, patterns, and practices. There's so many resources out there. Where should you go? Well, that's where Educative.io comes in. Educative.io is a browser-based learning environment allowing you to jump right in and learn as quickly as possible without needing to set up and configure your local development environment. 
Yeah, so I worked through uh, Big O for coding interviews and beyond, which is really great because it had a lot of visualizations and uh, some ways of kind of testing my knowledge. So I could basically, you know, look at the end. If I thought I knew a section well, I could scrub to the end and then uh, figure out if I knew how to answer those questions. If not, I could just scroll up a little bit to, to re, uh, re-go through some of that information. And now 41% through grokking the system design interview, which has been just amazing. I'm on section 13 of 31, and uh, it's been like really in-depth um, – kind of walkthroughs of various uh, architectures for things like Twitter or um, YouTube, things like that. And now I'm trying to decide what's next. And I am looking at the the one of the courses you started out, a lot of the machine learning for software engineers, but I've also got my eye on the GraphQL course. So I'm not sure what to do next. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm with you there. They, they just sent out, uh, I got it, you know, because we're signed up, we get notifications about like, Hey, here's the new stuff that we have going on. Right. And so they already had concurrency courses for, they, they called it their concurrency interview courses. They already had it for Python and Java and now they've added it on for C sharp. So there's the C sharp concurrency for senior engineering interviews. Uh, and you know, I'm with you though, but here's the thing. Considering that Rust has been voted as like one of the most popular languages, they have learned Rust from scratch. And I'm really thinking that that's going to be my next one that I go after. And I can't stress enough how awesome it is. The ability to like, you don't have to set up your environment to learn this, this code. Like you could just start playing with it immediately. And because it's all browser based, you don't have to worry about setting that up. You can do it from your, from your iPad. I haven't bothered to try it on a phone, but you know, you could be on your laptop, on your desktop, whatever device and pick it up and continue. And you know, I think I've said this before about how they have like an interactive coding environment right there in the browser. But not only is that like for like when it's actually time to code, but the actual examples themselves are code that you can interact with and edit and you can run it and you can be like, Oh, that's interesting how that worked. What if I make this change? Then what happens? And you can do it right from the example code that they gave you, let alone when it actually comes time to write the code for whatever you know particular task you're trying to do. Yeah, and I'm looking at the uh, the system design for Yelp right now, which is one I remembered uh, specifically because of the numbers they went through. So they actually break things down by like the database schema and how many bytes, estimate the number of uh, items per day, and then take that by year. And it's just incredibly in depth and, uh, I mean, just eye opening to me to, to really think about things in this way. So I, I definitely really recommend that one. So start learning today by going to educative.io slash coding blocks. That's educative, E D U C A T I V E dot io slash coding blocks and get 20% off any course. All right. So on with some resources that we like, um, we've got uh, all the references that we've, uh, had in other episodes like the three factor example, <laughs> three factor app example, reference implementation. We'll have that uh, link to uh, the Microsoft article we're talking about with uh, architectural styles for event driven architectures. And also uh, we'll have that educated.io link to GraphQL uh, from the client perspective. And uh, on to my favorite portion of the show it's the tip of the week. Yeah, but hey, it was also Nicholas' favorite part of it part of the show so yep. yes yes <laughs> I, I have i have a partner out there somewhere <laughs> all right so um my tip of the week uh you know it's a good tip as you do <laughs> you know like a gentleman um <laughs> so uh we've we've talked about github and get all the time right but have you ever thought about like hey uh, you know, your email address could be exposed in your Git log in your, in your, in any repo that you're participating in, right? 
So you can actually keep your email address private in your GitHub repo. Uh, now I didn't bother to check, and this is where I got lazy. I didn't bother to check to see if like GitLab and Bitbucket and others like, allow you to do this too. But you know, I imagine they might have a similar service. But if they don't, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you can set your your uh, email address private in your uh, GitHub repo, uh, or you know, whichever it might not be the repo that you own, but whichever one you're contributing to, by setting it to your GitHub username at users.noreply.github.com. Dude, that is an amazing tip. So you can do, so the command that you're going to do this again, this will be in the show notes, but you're going to do get config username. Uh, you know, so uh, let me rephrase this, get config, get space config space user.email space Jane Doe at users.noreply.github.com, assuming Jane Doe was your username. I love that. I'm doing that tomorrow. Yeah. So, because it just dawned on me, like something, I don't know why, something dawned on me, and I'm like, you know, I bet nobody ever thinks about that. And, you know, that's just like a secret that you might not, you know, want spread out there, but, you know, at least not for like spam and whatnot, but, you know. That's a killer. Yeah. And then another one, uh, I thought I would mention this before. I thought we'd already mentioned it once before, but then like I, mi- I mentioned this show to, to Alan and it took him by surprise. And I was like, man, I guess we got to talk about this on the show then. Yeah. But, um, there's another really great podcast out there that if you haven't listened to, you will enjoy called Darknet Diaries. And it's true. It's, their subtitle is True Stories from the Dark Side of the Internet. And there's like all kinds of great, uh, um, you know, things out there. Like there was a whole series on, like, I think Alan, you said you listened to the Xbox underground. It was awesome. And, and it was like how, how that built, you know, how that story built from like just hacking, just trying to get the, you know, your own things to run on that Xbox and how like that got to, uh, I don't even remember where that one ended up. The crazy, so crazy, so dark. Yeah. So any rate. There's all kinds of like, oh, another one that was really good because you guys know my love of escape rooms and all that. Mm-hmm. Episode forty three PPP was amazing. Oh, that was the, was that the one where they had like the hidden DefCon? They went to DefCon uh, party, yes, and, and and like you go to this, you go to the the bar where the party is, and you're like, man, this looks lame, and then you see like five people pop out of a uh, uh, a photo booth, and you're like. Wow, they were all in that same photo booth. That's crazy. And the next day, everybody's talking about this massive killer party. You're like, well, where was it? They're like, you had to go through the photo booth to get to it. Yeah. And and they have like this whole, it's almost like a a scavenger hunt type thing. They have multiple of them at DEF CON every year. Dude, that episode was amazing. Like so far, everything I've listened to on here was super interesting. There was one, I, I, I don't remember what episode number it was or else I would, I would share, but, uh, just to give you an idea, like, one of the stories was along the lines of um, a company that whose job it is is to uh, you know they're they're basically like a physical security company right like they're trying to see like hey can we f- gain physical access into your company's infrastructure and then once we do then what kind of like you know digital access can we gain from that right and they were talking about um, you know they everything was going great they had this great client you know, relationship going on here in the U S and their customer was like, Hey, you're doing such a great job for us. Do you think you could do something for us in, uh, like our other countries? Like, you know, um, 
I, I don't know, pick random country, Brazil or whatever it was. And they didn't speak the, the native language in that country. And they were like, uh, yeah, we can try. And they ended up working their way in all by starting by looking at, um, I think it was Facebook specifically. They, they w- saw the employees, uh, several of the employees, um, took part in some kind of nonprofit or charity or something like that. I forget what it was, or, or blood drive or something. I forget what it was, but it was literally like, uh, uh, what's the word when you're like doing good for things for the humanity or people or whatever. Oh, charity. Uh, no, not, not charity. charity. Uh, starts with an H. I think. Uh, why do words elude me? Uh, I know, I know what you're all talking the best about. words. I know what At any rate, um, somebody's like, people are screaming in their cars right now. <laughs> um, at any rate, uh, uh, so, so, you know, they were doing these like really great things. Right. And, and so what they ended up doing is they ended up going to one of these events, uh, where they knew that the employees were going to be and we're like, yeah, we're from corporate. And, uh, you know, we just think that this is amazing that you guys are doing this. We'd love to help out and sponsor, you know, whatever we can. Uh, you know, we're only here for like, you know, a couple hours, but we'll be back in town next week. Maybe we can get together for lunch or whatever. And because of that one interaction that was off site, these employees unknowingly were like, oh yeah, great. No, sure. Let us know. And then they walked them in the door it, to the office. And from there they had all the access they wanted. And it was just, there are great stories like that, that, you know, it's really an interesting show. Man, I am dying inside because I can't think of this word. Are you yeah. going for altruism? No, but it's. It's, it's ooism something or oism. It's, it's, Let us know in the comments. <laughs> yeah, there was another one too. Like I think what even got us started on got me started on this show was I thought that when we originally talked about this, somebody was talking about like iTunes reviews. Yeah, 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 yeah. I heard about it on Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, and and he like investigated iTunes reviews uh, and was finding out like how there were some shows. So like we always ask. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, it's a little humbling to ask, but we ask, right. Cause, cause we really do appreciate it. We really do enjoy reading it. And, uh, but apparently there were some other shows. I don't know that they were necessarily specific to tech. In fact, if I remember right, they weren't, they were like just mm-hmm. more general broad purpose podcasts out there that, um, according to his research that, you know, it wasn't uncommon to find paid, uh, you know, services in like a China or an in India or something like that, where uh, you could hire that service and they would have, you know, some, some person might have 10,000 accounts that they would go in and just, you know, hash out a bunch of reviews for you and, you know, for your, for your show or whatever. It was actually subscriptions. They would, uh, they would have people that would like log into their account and subscribe, download, 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 then go back, cancel all the downloads, sign into the next account. Yep. So ridiculous. It's crazy just to gain those rankings in order to get real followers. And then, so you game long enough and then you don't need to. Yeah, pretty much. When are we going to start doing that, by the way? Yeah. I'm too lazy. We too oh, lazy. Right. That's it. <laughs> we're developing. I like how you both were like at the same time. Like you couldn't, you couldn't possibly beat each other out any faster. <laughs> yeah. As soon as I, I t- found out it wasn't a script, it was actually people clicking. I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> Out. I would have totally programmed that. 
Uh, all right. So I've got three as uh, you know, oh my gosh. I, I can't, I can't, you know, show off. No, nah, not a show off. It's just, there were some great conversations in Slack. And if you're not a part of our Slack, you should go to codingblocks.net slash Slack and join in on all the amazing conversations there. But the first one, this one is super cool. And I think you guys will like this. So if you live in Azure and you need to do things in the Azure world, a lot of times when you start automating deployments, you use what are called ARM templates, right? Well, those are usually just blobs of JSON that, you know, aren't all that readable as most, you know, templated type code isn't. But our friend Dave Follett, now super opinionated instead of super good, Dave, (laughs) he left a link in, I think, our dev chat that is an ARM viewer. It will actually visualize your deployment template. So it'll kind of give you a picture representation of what you're about to spit out into the world of Azure. And that's super cool. And this is a, I believe it's a Visual Studio plugin. It might be a VS Code plugin that you take your ARM template, stick it in there, and it'll give you a nice picture representation of what you're going to do. Awesome stuff. Um, Some of the drawings are a little scary. There's arrows pointing everywhere, and you're like, oh, my God, I just blew up the Internet. <laughs> I, no, I recreated the Internet. What did I do? I'm yeah. done. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you, no. were, you were the alpha and the omega of the Internet. <laughs> yeah. So that one is pretty awesome. And currently, it has a perfect five-star review out of six people reviewing. So that's good because usually people complain more than anything. Out of six people reviewing. Out of six people, you know. I mean, it's a bit. Hey, look, man, people typically don't sign in for accounts to review stuff. So we need to get that link from Darknet Diaries and hand it to this guy and be like, go buy some reviews. That's right. Go buy, go buy you some reviews. All right. So the next one, this is from Stephen Metcalf, also Raithlin over in Slack. This also came from our dev channel. This one was cool because I don't know how useful it is, but it was really cool. Um, there is a WSL plugin for JetBrains IntelliJ that basically allows you to run things against the Windows subsystem for Linux using IntelliJ. So I think what it boils down to is sometimes there are builds in Java that just don't work well on Windows. They work better in a Java or in a uh, Linux environment. And so I think this allows you to leverage the Windows subsystem for Linux to use the native C and C++ type stuff to get better builds out of it with with less frustration so that was kind of cool didn't know it existed as a matter of fact um we'll have a link to that but even above that intellij or JetBrains rather has a toolbox download that allows you to get some of this stuff so all pretty neat you're about to say well there's a similar uh, uh extension for vs code oh really yeah, I'm trying to find it now because uh, I get pinged about it all the time. Like, hey, I see you want you have this. You want to install it? And I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one day. I can't be bothered yeah, to click that go. install button. There you go. It's the Visual Studio Code Remote WSL extension lets you use the Windows subsystem for Linux as your full-time development environment right from code. Throw it up there in your tips of the week, man. You got an extra one. All right. And then the last one that I was going to do, so there was a conversation. I think it was in Dev Talk or Dev Chat or I don't even remember where it was. But somebody had made the comment of, man, I really wish there was like a, a SQL Server Management Studio for Mac. It kind of sucks that there's not one. Well, it turns out there kind of is. But 
it's not what you'd think it was called. And that's the problem is it totally derails. And there, I, I should probably just put up a web page that says SMS, SSMS for Mac and just redirect it here. Um, so it's actually called Azure Data Studio. And the thing that's interesting about this is they've created a UI that is basically cross platform and it'll allow you to connect to Azure Cosmos. It'll allow you to connect to a SQL server. It'll allow you to connect to a lot of things. And it's actually, it's not as robust as SQL Server Management Studio, but it's got a lot of features that you can use if you're on a Mac to be able to interact with that kind of stuff. So, um, this is a great free tool that Microsoft is providing. So if you find yourself on Mac or in a Linux world, this, this might be able to, uh, but still specific to Microsoft databases. Uh, so it's that, not as like open as like a data grip then. It's not as open as data grip, but if you are, if you're connecting to a Cosmos DB, technically it has layers to operate as a Postgres or a ogre? SQL server or whatever. So, so I, I don't know how far you can take it to be honest, but I know that if you're connecting to Cosmos DB, you have, you have a lot of functionality there. So, um, yeah. All right. Well, cool. I have a tip. <laughs> you don't, you don't have four. <laughs> don't have four. So, uh, I, I think I gave, uh, Phoenix, the Phoenix project, uh, as a previous tip, uh, some, I'm some time sure. ago, which is a, a great fictionalized account of kind of introducing, uh, like DevOps and change management into the workplace. And it was really entertaining read and you should go read that or better go listen to it on audible because that's, uh, way easier for me anyway, way more enjoyable. And I can do it while I'm walking the dogs. Well, the authors of that book, have put out another book that is not fictional. It's uh, basically all about DevOps. In fact, it's called the DevOps Handbook. And very exciting to me is on Audible because I bought it and I started reading it and I just had a hard time with it. But now that it's on Audible, I'm going to be done with that thing in like three days. <laughs> so it's a lot of dog walking to do. And uh, it's a it's a it's probably a really great book. I haven't gotten very far in the actual print version of it and I just got the, uh, the Audible version today. So... Uh, I'm assuming it's going to be awesome and you should read it. So, so you recommended something that might suck. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I mean, I'm going to say 75% chance it's awesome. All right. I like it. I don't remember what episode number this is, but it's uh, the Docker for developers episode is where we talked about the Phoenix project. That was a good okay. episode. So that was uh, like last year, last July, last June, uh, last April. How do you have that? Like, do you have like some sort of reverse index in your head of our yeah. episode? What is that? Yeah. So sometimes, yeah, like, I kind of, yeah, dad I lets him like, drive the car on Sundays. <laughs> yeah, it's not very accurate. <laughs> I'm an excellent driver. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, man. 417 toothpicks. <laughs> uh, oh, Wapner. Gotta watch Wapner. All right. Oh, gosh. So, oh. <laughs> um, all right. So in this episode, we talked about the last factor of our three factor app. So we were officially out of factors here. Um, we talked about the asynchronous and serverless backend. So, you know, we're done until somebody comes out with the one factor app. When the four factor. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, we that's can't. right. Yeah. We went from 12 you factor down, down to, down to three factor. <laughs> no, you can't do two factor app. Yes. Yeah, that's the too many. back app. Let us know. 
All right. So with that, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, more using your favorite podcast app. And uh, as Joe said earlier, uh, if you haven't already, we would greatly appreciate if you left us a review. I don't care what Darknet Diaries says about it. We still like to read them. <laughs> um, and uh, you can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. While you're codingblocks.net at check show notes, hours <laughs> out, examples, more, and discussion. <laughs> <laughs> and send, 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 send questions, feedback, and rants to Slack. And I just realized I missed a great opportunity to joke. I should have said a quarter of a nickelback. That's way <laughs> funnier because they're both monies. Anyway, Along with 50 cents. So, <laughs> yeah. Make sure at Coding Box, follow Twitter at, 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 at social links at the top of the page. Okay, Max Headroom. <laughs> uh.